I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Wrestlers. You've got to believe in who you are and why you're doing it to the point where you're almost a method actor, to where you lose touch with reality. You've got to be a little mad to live in this world and and have even a chance of success. Today, we're talking to director and executive producer, Greg Whiteley. For those who dream of leaping from the top rope and body slamming their opponent, their journey begins at Ohio Valley Wrestling, a Kentucky-based training ground for would-be stars. Run by a famous retired wrestler, OVW features characters fans love to root for and love to hate. But the organization is pinned to the mat, drowning in debt. OVW's new owners have given the team until the end of the summer to get into the black, and that starts a grudge match over the league's future. The Netflix documentary series Wrestlers brings us behind the chaotic scenes at OVW, exposing the athletes' stories in and out of the ring. Can the group bring in enough fans to keep it from going down for the count once and for all? The first thing that would happen is we'd probably get rid of the weekly shows. But longer term, this place might close if we can't justify keeping doing it. And I'm joined now by director and executive producer, Greg Whiteley. Welcome back to You Can't Make This Up, Greg. Oh, thanks for having me back. So you created one of my all-time favorite sports series, Cheer. And these are both extremely personal, intimate looks at sports, not necessarily in the mainstream. So how did Ohio Valley Wrestling get on your radar? There was uh, a friend, Alejandro, who works for BBC America. And he came to me with a sizzle that he had created. He'd gone out there and he'd met with Al and uh, Cash and a couple of the other wrestlers. And it it looked interesting enough to me that it warranted me going to Netflix and saying, hey, I think there's something here. And they, they floated just enough cash for us to go out there for a day. And so we went out there for a day to meet them and to shoot a little, to shoot some footage. And um, uh, I was sold. I, I was sold, I think, 10 minutes after arriving, there's just um, uh, this musty old gym, which is OBW. <laughs> and, and, and we were greeted by Al. And I go, oh, this is, I know this is going to be amazing. This will be great. I can't believe that was the first words out of your mouth, musty old gym. Because I was about to say, was it the smell of the place that sold you? <laughs> because the place is so visceral, right? I mean, the visuals are visceral, but like, Everything about this place, you just like it smacks you in the face, even on film. Is that what it's like in person? Yeah, it's funny you bring up the smell. Somebody else asked me about the smell. It must <laughs> the way that we shot it, it must look smelly, but it doesn't it doesn't smell in the gym. I think they do a good job of keeping it clean. I'll I'll put it this way. I've been in way worse places. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to name names, but the EMCC locker room is by far the worst smelling place we've ever filmed. Yeah, yeah. You also did hang out with a bunch of young people, like a lot of cheerleaders, a lot of young people, like teenage heirs, like people. So I get it. I get it. Um, but that's just a lot thing- of Axe body spray. That isn't, <laughs> that's not, that's, that is a, you know, that's not a great smell, but it's not as bad as, as, you know, 
It could be. Yeah. So one thing that both cheer and wrestlers have in common is that we meet people who are somewhat living in the margins and um, there's a lot at stake for them. So talk to me about the casting process for wrestlers, because there are a lot of characters in that gym. And ultimately, you had to choose who you're going to feature in this series. Yeah, I think everywhere you go where you're doing um, like, say, you're going to be chronicling a team, you have to choose. And uh, in, in our case, if it's a cheerleading squad, you've got about 35 different people who you, you know, assuming all of them want to do it, which it, it's all that's almost never true. There's always a handful of people that do not want to be on camera. There's a handful of people that are dying to be on camera. And then there's a ton of people that are somewhat ambivalent in the middle. At OVW, you have 100 percent of the people who are dying to be on camera. They you just <laughs> it, and it was. Oh, a little bit overwhelming. And so you had to, you know, we try and just be kind of inspired. There are just some people everywhere we've gone that leap out at us and they leap out initially. We'll go back to the hotel room, go back to the hotel lobby at night and we'll meet as a team and go, okay, well, who, you know, who is popping for you? Who, who stood out to you? There's usually a consensus of people, but I've always kind of have my favorites that on the very first day when you're there and you're kind of meeting all of them and LVW was very nice to organize an all-team meeting when we first showed up. So we got to meet almost everybody the first day we were there. Um, and uh, it's funny how, and this is just kind of seems to be true, there's always four or five that leap out at me. And I think, oh, okay, well, let's start there. But it's funny how when you end up, that those end up being the four or five that you yeah. end up focusing on. But there are also some that like you have to see, even though they might not be the main characters, right? Like you have to show us Mr. Spectacular a bunch of times, like even though he's not a main character because he's riding in and out on a Segway, he's flexing those pecs, like he can't not be in it, right? No, I and you'd be foolish to ignore Mr. Spectacular. <laughs> yeah, that's that is a vain pursuit anyway. But um and he is great. He he really is emblematic of what I personally love so much about the gym. You have this group of people who are um, entertainers, they're performers, and they are not shy about being on camera. But I think because they're under the tutelage of Al, they have sort of bought into the idea that part of the secret to their gimmick is to reveal who they really are, have that be part of the act. And so I felt like the groundwork was just really fertile for the kind of work that we try and do, which is to capture who people really are. And mm. um, and so whether it's Jesse Goddard's uh, Mr. Spectacular or Haley or Maria, for the most part, right from jump, you have a group of people that are willing to be both big and interesting, but also vulnerable and authentic. So in the ring, the wrestlers are either baby faces whom we root for, or the heels, whom we root against. And I'm wondering, for the purposes of the documentary, did you see some of these people as heels and others as baby faces for the story that you were telling? No, I appreciate you bring that up. I, I think it's important not to draw such broad distinctions. I understand why those tropes are used in wrestling, where uh, in about two minutes, you've got to quickly tell a whole story. And so from jump, you want to be able to tell who's the good person and who's the bad person. But for our purposes of storytelling, we really want to find, uh, even if there is somebody who might be a natural antagonist. And I think 
when you love Al and you love who he is and you and you and he is, I think, one of the central figures of the show. Well, that's natural to sort of root against the person that he's bumping up against, which would be the owner, uh, Matt Jones. Uh, but the truth is, Matt Jones is a great guy. And 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 I think it's really good storytelling to take who might be your traditional heel and give that person their reasons. Try and understand what makes them tick. Why why are they uh, bumping up, uh, butting heads with your your main character? And I think one of the things I love about this format that that we have fallen into in our relationship with Netflix, where we're in this long form storytelling, is that we're really given the real estate to tell multiple perspectives, to honor multiple perspectives in, in telling this particular story. So. Hopefully you walk away from it going, gosh, what an interesting, rich group of characters rather than this very broad dividing line of good guys and bad guys. So we all know that wrestling is is fake, right? I mean, that's not a controversy anymore, but, um, you know, that fans know that and they don't care. So is it fair to call wrestling and these wrestling matches? It's kind of it's just a soap opera of sorts, right? Yeah, I think there's two things that are happening um, when you go to a wrestling match. Um, I think you, I think you'd be really hard pressed to find anybody over the age of eight years old that's in attendance that thinks what they're looking at, at least on the surface, is real. That there really is an actual real conflict that's happening inside the ring, and that these people are really—I don't want to say, like I was about to say—they're they're not really hitting each other, but but in many cases they are. They're they're exaggerating in some instances those blows, but. The truth is when somebody's really flying off the turnbuckle uh, and landing on a table and breaking in half, the truth is that table has been prepped so it will break in half, but you're still having to fly off the turnbuckle. You still have to land and break through a table. And so there wasn't a single night that we filmed at OBW in which people that we cared about were going home with injuries. Um, Mm. So to that extent, it's not fake. But I will say it's fake in a lot of the same ways that a magician is is fake. I think most people understand when they go to a magic show that it's sleight of hand. It's not real magic that's happening. You're not really sawing a lady in half. But a really good magician is going to pay that off in a way that it it's there's an art to what they're doing. It's inherently entertaining. Um it's fascinating for your mind to go, well, how did they do that? And I think wrestling is pulling much the same trick. Hmm. So I want to talk about some of the subjects. So the top dog at OVW is Al Snow. He's a former WWE wrestler, and fans might remember him as the guy who would enter the ring carrying a mannequin head. He's sort of the elder statesman. He's described as the, the teacher, the mentor, the guy who owns this enterprise. You're an actor. You're an athlete. You're a rock star. It's fireworks, it's sex. You know, that's why they call it a pop. Pop is is short for pop their nut. And to make an audience believe to where it culminates and you get them to have an emotional orgasm, there's nothing else like it. What amazes me is how much stuff he has to do, how many skills he has 
the wrestling itself, the business, the storyboarding of the stories, the in the moment script writing and directing for live television. Can you just talk about Al and like, what kind of guy is this? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about Al is he is a legitimate former star of wrestling. Like if you follow Al to a, uh, you know, a, a WWE SmackDown event, he can't go 15 feet without being stopped by a fan that um, is going to call out to him by name. And then the groups of fans will also walk by and, and, and chant his name. Uh, he's that, he's that well known. What, what is also true about Al is because I think he is inherently modest as a person and he's very much a team player and he loves and respects wrestling and the tradition of wrestling in his bones. He, I think, spent a lot of his career being deferential to other partners, tag team partners, other wrestlers that he was pitted against uh, who were more ambitious than he was. And so he, he tells this very interesting story where he was, he was set to win the title. And of course, it's a fake title. It, 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 you know, they're deciding ahead of time who's going to win. But somebody, as part of the tag team match, the other team that he was going up against, came up with this funny idea uh, that, that would actually allow them to win. But Al thought it was a good enough idea that even though it would hurt his career, he thought it would actually help the match. And so he capitulated. Hmm. And I think by the time we catch up with Al, we see someone who has enjoyed success, true authentic success as a pro wrestler, but maybe not as much as it could have been if he was just a little more ambitious. And so you feel when you meet Al that there is some unfinished business that he's got. And I hmm. think he sees now it's too late for him to go back and, and relive his career and maybe make some different choices that might have advanced his career more than it should have. But it's not too late for him to pass on that knowledge to other wrestlers. And it's also not too late for him to take this little gym and maybe make it bigger than it is. And you could feel that that he's being fueled in part by some things that that didn't happen for him back in his day. Hmm. So OVW had been struggling financially until it was purchased by these two guys, uh, Greg Greenberg, who's a silent partner, and Matt Jones, a local radio personality with lots of ideas. Um, but Matt can't understand why, even though everyone is finally getting paid and, uh, you know, he's got lots of ideas and he's, he's so, you know, enthusiastic about this, why he's being disrespected. Listen, I like you, but I don't need you to tell me to chill. You don't get to talk to people that way just because you're stressed. You're stressed and anxious. Chill. Take right. a breath. Okay. I appreciate your help. So why do you think it is that Matt can't fit in initially? Matt is not an official member of the circus family. I said, people said this to me over and over again. Well, he's never taken a bump in the ring. So that's wrestling parlance for he's never been hurt wrestling. He's never had to, in the, in the spirit of making the match seem more believable, you'll allow yourself to actually really get hit or what they call take a bump. You're going to get bruised. You're, you're, you're going to do something you know is going to hurt a little bit uh, or maybe even more than a little bit. 
wrestlers to become part of that family. Over time, you earn it. You pay dues by taking your bumps. So I think when Matt comes in initially, he's seen very much as an outsider. He is doing a lot for that gym. I mean, if if Matt and his partners don't come along, you could argue the gym folds. There just isn't enough resources to keep going. Please stop yelling at this me. Is what makes stop it, yelling this at is me. what makes it hard to deal with you. We're paying people. Used to be like five people got paid. Now everybody gets something. But it is very frustrating to have been the people that changed this company so that they, people could get paid and get punished for it. And I think it's really confusing to Matt as to why isn't, why isn't that being acknowledged? Why aren't wrestlers more grateful for it? Now, there are some. I get the impression Cash understood, Mr. Spectacular understood, because I think in some ways, those guys are both businessmen themselves. So they've, mm-hmm. they've taken their business bumps. So they, they can appreciate what, what Matt and Craig are, are bringing to the table. But if you're Maria, you, you only see these people as outsiders who don't know what they're talking about. They're trying to give advice. They're making changes that in her mind to a place that's already perfect. Why would you change OVW? And so therein lies the conflict between those two camps of people. There is this huge turning point, though, when during a meeting where, you know, coincidentally, Matt is talking about how he's not going to stand for any more insubordination. And then he has an epileptic seizure. Can you talk about your crew's priorities during a situation like that? Yeah, I mean, very simply, our priorities are to document what's happening. Matt, take a deep breath. Relax. Water. Try to breathe. Matt, Matt, take some nice deep breaths. Let me get them out. I think if we were the only ones there and our filming was somehow standing in the way of him living or dying, well, of, of course, that choice is easy. You immediately throw your cameras down and you rush to the aid of that individual, but he was surrounded by a, uh, a team of people who were uh, well-versed in trauma, including a, a, a pro wrestler who his regular job during the day was working as an EMT. So, you know, as soon as it's, you could right away, he's being cared for. Uh, I don't think it occurred to any one of us that we should stop filming in that instance. Did you have editing discussions about what it would mean um, to show that and what it would mean to leave some of that out of the documentary? Matt made a request after that happened. He called me and he said, listen, you guys do what you're going to do, but it would be, it's my request that you don't show the seizure. And his reasoning was, I, I don't want my mom to see that. That will be hard for her to see. Hmm. And so I understood that. However, I knew that Matt was going to be initially hated in the show because I understand I've been doing this long enough to know he is somebody who is working in opposition to the main character. And so I've always seen my job as a documentarian to try and build empathy for both the main character and other people that are in that, in that person's orbit. And in that case, it's Matt. And I knew that we were in, we were digging a bit of a hole because here is an artist, Al, and here is a business owner, presumably wealthy, with enough money to buy a gym. And so almost always you are going to side with the artist in that situation. And we knew that. I knew that. I also knew that there was something about 
Matt experiencing that seizure that was going to allow audiences to begin to see him in a more human light. It was actually necessary for his story to have that component. And I will bet you if you polled a hundred people who have watched the show, at least 90, if not 99 of them would say from the moment Matt has his seizure, they begin to look at him differently and his story arc shifts and changes. There is this thread and this theme, I think, of parents and children throughout the series. And one person that you feature is Hollywood Haley J. And she is the daughter of the amazing Maria, also a central figure. And at the beginning of the documentary, we keep hearing that she's immature, that she has this chip on her shoulder. And then we eventually learn that it's because she's carrying around this tremendous amount of pain and resentment that stems from her childhood and her unresolved issues with her mom. Did it take time to get her to open up about that as you were making this film? Yeah, it did. When I say that the wrestlers were open and eager to be on camera, uh, that was everyone but Haley. Haley could, could really care less about who we were and what we were trying to do in, in the first weeks that we were there filming. Uh, but she was so alluring as, uh, as a personality that we just we couldn't give up on, on her. When my mother went to jail, we were bouncing around from house to house. Anywhere we went to, Haley J was not the favorite, me and my brother. I always got beat up, spit on, called a bitch, wasn't allowed to talk to my mother when she was in jail on the phone. My mom was locked up and I was unhappy. I was going through a lot of things I already felt by myself, I guess. And then um, when she gets out of jail, she starts wrestling and getting her life together. She was gone all the time and I was out doing whatever I wanted to do. You know. To her credit, I think eventually she began to catch the spirit of the story we were trying to tell and began to open up. But it took time. Well, Al builds this storyline of Haley and her mom, uh, where they eventually end up having this death match. And this is where they hit each other with all sorts of props. And unlike in other matches, there's a lot of reality here. Uh, The blood is real. At one point, they keep body slamming each other into hundreds or more uh, thumbtacks on the mat And in the cutaways, we can see the reactions of the crowd and the crew behind the scenes change. Like there's something else completely going on here. Can you talk about what it was like to be there uh, making that scene? Yeah, I will. So the to set the scene, um, as Haley and Maria, they spend Al spends many many weeks leading up to this match, where this mother and daughter, these two characters mother who are mother and daughter are sparring with each other. They keep coming into conflict with each other. It, it begins one night when Maria has to go out there and reprimand Haley for misbehaving in the ring. And they get into a shoving match where Maria has to shove her own daughter down. Well, by the time we get to the ring, you can feel that there is a tremendous amount of resentment and anger and hatred even on the part of Haley towards her mom. And there's a huge amount of regret and guilt and remorse on the part of the mom. Al has always taught that the very best gimmicks or wrestling personas are grounded in some element of reality. 
And so when we as a crew were watching that match that night, there were elements of what was happening inside that ring that were in fact true to life. I just want this to be over. Every shot, it just reminded her of Maria, what she's lost. Right now, the race is coming to Marina of Carnage, Haley Jane. They start making each other bleed. And there is a, some very rich symbolism to when a, a figure bleeds. And even if it's done just through thumbtacks, uh, or in the case of Maria, a razor blade that's, that's concealed inside her finger that she's taped on the edge of her finger, it still is so jarring to see real blood in person. Uh, but particularly in this wrestling match where it's supposed to be fake, that you could feel the audience, for some members of the audience, it was just too much. We saw people get up and leave. Hmm. For others, it quickly went to something very deep and visceral. And in that match, Haley eviscerates her mom and her mom allows it to happen. As soon as she sees what she's done to her mom, Haley softens. And there is this very moving reconciliation. And anybody that knows their true behind-the-scenes story, that was art imitating life. So Haley's in this relationship with another wrestler who's called Darkstorm. Through the series, we see they have this very volatile, toxic relationship, which culminates in a domestic violence incident and in the finale, they seem to be reconciling, potentially getting back together. Can you give me your take on that? What was that like to witness as you were making the series? That's, a, that's really complicated. I, I think, you know, domestic violence is not something that should be taken lightly. You wouldn't ever want to stand back and, I think, exploit an incident of domestic violence for entertainment purposes. As the documentarians in trying to tell their true life stories, it became clear to us that there was a volatility to their relationship that, to their credit, they were completely honest about. When you asked Haley about it, she was honest about her abuse of Darkstorm. And when you asked Darkstorm, he was honest about his uh, abuse of Haley. People are extremely complicated, I think. I think our job in those instances is to document it as authentically as possible and sort of trust that what is right and true, if properly documented, can then become something for an audience to begin to digest and parse through and, and debate and think through. And I, I want to be careful that I am not leading the audience with uh, too heavy of a hand that would somehow rob them of that ability to digest what are very complicated human uh, emotions, uh, human um, relationships are fraught with all kinds of things that are, I think are, we're sometimes tempted to paint with a, a broad brush. And I think the beauty of this type of storytelling is to honor its complexity and, and let audiences choose for themselves what they think is right or wrong. And, and I, I think both Haley and Darkstorm give us a lot to think about. 
Now, shifting gears, I do want to ask you about just the craft of making this. Some of the interviews that you do in this documentary are in some of the most intimate moments I have ever seen in a series. Uh, You have one of the wrestlers while he is spray tanning. You have Al while he's on the massage table with his face through that little hole in the pillow. You have this incredible shot of Mr. Pectacular in the tanning bed with the little things over his eyes. Um, Can you talk about executing these interviews and, you know, getting them to do it, first of all, but also why you wanted to get them in these moments? Well, I I think there's a part of me that resents having to shoot interviews to begin with. I think mm. that if, I think if I were better at my job, I would love for just the verite footage to speak for itself and that and you would be able to follow along the story. But the problem is I think the reality is you, you just it's too hard. Like every time I start to I commit myself to that path, I think well people don't even know what a heel is. They don't know what what a a baby face is. I I better ask people. I need to interview people. And and you start going down that path and I just hate it. I hate just sitting somebody down and just, you know, they're in their office and then there's lights and it's just so boring. And and so I think it was just more fun to go, oh, what do you got going on today? Oh, you're getting a spray tan. Well, do you mind if we ask you a few questions while you're in the booth? <laughs> Wrestling is a very aesthetic business and you have to look your best. It's very expensive. You know, there's an old saying in wrestling, you have to work a regular job to support your wrestling habit. These wrestlers, to their infinite credit, are up for anything. Yeah, including Darkstorm sitting in that rundown car that looks like a suit around his giant body, right? Oh, that guy. I mean, what a gem. I mean, think about this. I mean, he's just like, he was like, yeah, all right, let's do it. Well, I want to talk about the action itself because the summer uh, over which the series takes place is so important to OVW because if they can't turn everything around, they may have to shut down. So they go on the statewide tour to promote this event called The Big One. And judging from these early tour dates, it doesn't seem like they're really building too much, right? No, I, I think it's, a, it's really a case of best laid plans. I think something that we referenced all the time as a filmmaking team was uh, uh, the Muppets, the first Muppets movie, where uh, they got to save the theater. There's some, I think it's a guy, a character, Charles Grodin plays the heavy and he's going to come in and, and he's going he's gonna to foreclose on the Muppet theater. And um, so the Muppets come up with this great plan to save the theater, but because they're Muppets, it really doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it's not going to work. Um, but also because they're Muppets, it somehow does work. But that's really what we watch. Like they... They embark on this really ambitious statewide tour. And by the way, they do that every year. But this one is unusually ambitious. And they think because of Matt's influence, they are now going to go to places uh, that they have not been before, or they're going to spend some resources that they haven't spent in the past. And all of it is to build to this, this night that will happen at OVW at the end. It's almost like they're going on this barnstorming tour where uh, like the Blues Brothers have 24 hours to turn out an audience and fill a 5,000 seat theater. They're, they're trying to do that. And they're really, I remember we were nervous. Like, is this really going to work? Because you have a group of investors who are sick of losing money. And if after all that work during the summer, you can't fill OVW, then as Matt says, what are we doing? You know, and and it wasn't clear as we were filming this summer tour that it was actually going to work. 
So Matt thinks this big draw will be Al coming out of retirement to fight, and he's super reluctant to do so, and he has to get back into fighting shape. And we've seen him just be this gruff but, you know, soft-spoken leader, like the glue holding everything together. And then he gets into this ring for this, what appears to me to be this real championship performance can you talk about this? Was this was a was this a real performance and was this like a real redemption arc so to speak for him? Like what was that like? Well, to set this up, his idea, he he sees potential in Haley's character early on that she could become this linchpin, his muse that would he would spend weeks, even months building up this storyline between she and Maria. And that it would culminate during the big one. The problem is the plan works too well. And Haley becomes famous enough that an outside entity says, hey, we'll pay you more money. Uh, or actually, I should say pay you some money to, <laughs> to come to L.A. And, and act for us, you know, to, or, to, or, or to be part of our, our wrestling outfit. And so she commits to doing it. And it, it just breaks Al's heart. Like, oh, my gosh, like I've got this night that's going to serve as a a test. If I don't pass this test with the investors that may close the gym, this thing that I've been using, this this person who's I've been building this whole show around this moment between her and Maria, and and he and she comes out of the blue and says, "Yeah, yeah, no, we got it. We're going to be out of town that that weekend. Sorry." I think that is when it forces Al to go. All right, well, if she's not going to be there. Then then I've got to come out of retirement. And it's uh, it was just one of those gifts to our uh, to our project that that happened the way it did. It was. And he I'll tell you, Al's a nice guy, right? Because a lot of people in that position would have flown off the handle and he didn't. He just reacts in such a nurturing, wonderful way all the time. And I just kept watching this and being like, God, I wish Al was my dad. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a weird reaction to have to Al? No, I think every wrestler feels like you do. Because oh, okay. at the end of the day, he wants what's best for them. And on on the one hand, that engenders a ton of loyalty and love and affection. On the other hand, sometimes what's best for your kids is not necessarily what's best for you personally. And Al, to his credit, he allows that to happen. And I think he also understands that's the nature of OVW. It is a place that at its very, very best, was a proving ground for the John Batistas, the the Brock Lesners, the John Cena's of the world. So he's not ever going to do anything to hold anyone back. So what about Ohio Valley Wrestling today? Is it still around? What's happening with the wrestlers that you followed in the series? I keep getting reports uh, that, well, they're doing great. I think the show has helped them, as you can imagine that it would. Um, But I'm also getting text messages that there's this strange dynamic where there were certain wrestlers that were featured more than others. And and I, I don't know if this is true. I'm only getting it from, you know, one side of the story. But I'm hearing that some of those wrestlers... 
uh, are now being criticized for not pulling their weight and, you know, cleaning the bathrooms, picking up the garbage after the show, <laughs> setting up the chairs in the ring before the show. And so it feels like in some ways the gym is is in a better place. And in other instances, it feels like the gym is the same as it ever was. Ah, you've created some divas over there, Greg. <laughs> Greg Whiteley, the series is wrestlers. It is just spectacular. You may have now created my new favorite sports documentary, if that's possible. Thank you so much for joining me. And you can't make this up to talk about it. It is just so terrific. I, I love being back here again. Thank you for having me. Let's do it again. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to Greg Whiteley. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack and Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>